It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Just stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> G'day there, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage, which, as you know, comes from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations, and from the Crawford School's Policy Forum. And I don't say this enough, but I'm going to say it now. Thanks to uh, also need to be expressed to our executive producer, Angus Blackman, Jack Fox, who does the technical producing, and Adelaide Haynes, who's been doing a lot of work for us in the in the production side and a valuable uh, part of Democracy Sausage and who's moving on to new and exciting challenges. And, of course, we wish her well and thank her for all of her dedication. Um, now, to today's fair, which is really right up our alley here, Dr. Maria Teflaga. I should introduce you first as well, um, Dr. Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. She's a senior lecturer now. Congratulations on your promotion, Maria. Oh, thank you. The, technically, the ANU saves money by not um, boosting me to that new level till, till January. Um, <laughs> Got to save those pennies. Um, but yes, no. And, and I'd also like to... Um, sort of reiterate what you said about our fantastic um, team uh, who we couldn't do this without them. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this, you know, as everyone would know, but there's a lot of sort of organising that has to happen in terms of the sub, you know, the subjects or the topics that we're we're doing and who we who we are able to um, uh, attract into interviews and uh, uh, and of course actually making this thing happen technically uh, and and getting it out there and and some of the social media and everything. It was a lot of work. ANU puts uh, good resources into this and and it's going very well, of course. We're very happy with that. And uh, as I say, uh, today's topic is very much uh, up the alley of a, of a podcast called Democracy Sausage. It's welcome back to Professor Frank Bongiorno from the School of History and author of a fantastic new political history of Australia called Dreamers and Schemers. Oh, hi, Mark, and hi, Maria. It's lovely to be back. And, and yeah, um, I'm also very grateful for all the support we get for Democracy Sausage. Yes, it's um, it, it, thank you for saying so. Um, look, as I say, congratulations on this book. It's, uh, it's described as the first 
political history of Australia, which I suppose means sort of very much dedicated to the political side of it. So, for example, if you're looking at the Second World War, you're not looking at, you know, um, you're looking at the at the sort of domestic political dimensions of of that war, of the decision to go there, and 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 the various political issues around that time. Yeah, that's right, Mark. I mean, it's not a history of foreign policy, although you'd get a sense, obviously, of Australia's changing place in the world from the book. And, and it's not a, a social and cultural history either, except in one sense, that it, it tries to treat politics as an aspect of society and culture. So, mm. um, I mean, one of the things I've tried to do in the book is not to focus, uh, you know, exclusively on political leadership or political institutions. It's also an effort to, I guess, look at politics on the ground. What does politics look like from the bottom up, beginning with traditional Aboriginal society, it begins uh, pre-contact. Um, and I had some pretty quick uh, revisions of the conclusion to do on the two weekends after the May election. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, how challenging was it to, just going back to the point you made about um, talking about, a, you know, you're writing a book about the political history of Australia, talking about the period before contact as you described it, how difficult was it to... To, to write that and what what do you conclude? I mean, you talk about there being a politics or or there being mm. political um, aspects to uh, to, to uh, the interaction of uh, different First Nations, uh, trade, conflict, a range of other things. Yeah, it's it's certainly not a topic I, I could claim any expertise. I had to, I had to do both a fair bit of reading and and take advice from those who know a great deal more about it than me, but. Yeah, look, what I found is that, in a sense, the denial of political life and political uh, structures to Indigenous society by the British invaders was a part of a more general denigration uh, of Indigenous society, of which we're all aware. I mean, there's obviously been this huge debate in recent years, did they or did they not have agriculture? And I guess that's also been tied up in broader attitudes and understandings of Indigenous society by um, Europeans, by settlers. And, and, and kind of complicated, enmeshed almost, in in contemporary politics because those interpretations become political arguments in contemporary times. They do, they do. They, they, they leak into contemporary debate in all sorts of complex ways. I mean, Mark, you'll remember, I, I hope I'm not um, doing uh, Tim Fisher an injustice. In fact, I think I quote him in the book, don't I? Uh, talking you do. about Indigenous people or Aboriginal people not having wheeled carts, you know, as yeah. if that that technological point proves some larger one um, about you know degrees of advancement and all the rest of it. So, I mean, what I found is that that you know European explorers, British explorers, would say, "Oh, Aboriginal people have no government; they have no." Um, struck political structures or laws they don't have um you know kings or queens or 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 chiefs and all, all the kinds of things they expected to find that would have made aboriginal politics legible but then they go on to describe what looks like politics a decision making mm. process they describe assemblies that you know if you squinted a bit could could look like a robust colonial parliament in some ways i mean i exaggerate but um there was a kind of cognitive dissonance there that i think we probably also do find in other aspects of of european ethnographic observation of indigenous society and look i, I found it was important to talk about that at the beginning of the book because i kept coming back to aboriginal politics right through the text and i don't think we can understand the 
traditions uh, and patterns of Aboriginal politics, of self, of, of claims to self-government, to the practice of self-government, unless we're aware of those earlier political practices and structures. Yeah, in fact, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about the book, Frank, you know, the way that you sort of placed Indigenous history as, or rather like the state or the proto-state and the developing state's reaction to Indigenous people as an actually important lever of how um you know, self-government uh, po- political problems were, you know, were dealt with, you know, from its earliest days of, you know, settler relations, the the in trying to push out imperial, you know, policy during the, the sort of evangelical era and then, you know, around um, the federation debates where there was a sort of like public erasure going on just to sort of talk about the first sort of 120 years. Well, that, that's right, Maria, and I think this is one of the ways in which, you know, historiography has shifted across the last several decades. In fact, it shifted enormously since the last time I kind of wrote a, a, a sort of broad history of this kind, which was a history of sexuality in Australia about a decade ago. And look, that book began in 1788, and I, I certainly do talk about Aboriginal society in it, but I didn't feel a compulsion to give a broad account of pre-contact society 10 years ago, I was probably already behind the times um, in in failing to do that. But yeah, look, I think uh, that that field, that area we now call deep history or deep time is is just so much a part of how we understand politics. And I'm I'm also just struck by the way in which um, we're all, and when I say we, I'm probably thinking more of settler Australians here are learning a new political geography um, at the moment. We're learning about what Aboriginal nations are, what they look like, who belongs to them. you know, uh, our sense of the map of Australia has has shifted enormously. I think as a result of this much more multi layered sense of 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 territory, I guess, and and sovereignty that that is now very much, I think, a part of everyday discourse in politics. It's it's a really interesting. Uh, it raises so many interesting points. This discussion, though, because. Um, at, we we all know about the atrocities. I mean, we don't necessarily know about all the atrocities, but we all know of atrocities. Uh, we know of uh, uh, of the entrenched racism and discrimination and violence and all the all the other things that um, that have been very difficult, in a sense, for for orthodox politics to gradually bring itself around to confronting and and Australian society generally. But it's it's very difficult to understand, I suppose. Um, and I'm not making an excuse for anyone here, but it's w- what your um, treatment of this in the book and what you're saying now demonstrates, I think, very clearly is the the difficulties that uh, people had, uh, that is, arriving here in this country and interpreting what it was that they saw, which they presumably only saw glimpses of anyway, you know, the sort of geographically close part that they had some contact with and the attitudes that then abounded. Uh, but they, they, their, their understand their ability to to conceive of what was going on was very much a function of how they understood the world. So, as you say, kings and queens and parliaments and so forth, property. We understand property in a in a, in, a, in an absolutely different way, like a, a complete inverse way from that First Nations concept of of effectively being owned by the land mm-hmm. rather than the other way around, and how to make any sense of that other than to just regard it as 
as as many of them did, uncivilised or undeveloped or heathen or whatever it might have been. Well, that's right. I mean, British society is very hierarchical. Um, in in the late eighteenth century, when when um, you know, the Europe, the British invasion occurs, and um, they they look for similar kinds of political and social hierarchies in Indigenous society and can't really find them. And I think that does shape the way in which they look at the politics of Indigenous Australia. That said, I mean, it, it is pretty clear, and, and I, I talk about this, you know, in, in um, you know, the account of, of colonial government in Australia, that, that there is a, a growing awareness of of the uh, practices of Aboriginal self-government, um, you know, that we, we find, you, you find it, for instance, in that the, the almost, I mean, you call it really a heroic struggle, I think, over 20 years of the settlement at Corrandirk in Victoria to keep their land. Um, uh, it's not only about uh, Aboriginal people uh, petitioning, agitating, uh, forming delegations, manipulating the media of the day in their own interests, using the spaces offered by self-government to do that in quite creative ways. But but essentially having to conform to the, all of those strictures in order to protect their position, to understand those, you know, to rapidly learn how to uh, get influence and be heard – is, 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 I mean, that the onus was on them to adapt rather than the other way around, wasn't it? It, it was, but they also draw on their own uh, traditions of performance, of, of declamation, for instance, mm. of charisma. Um, someone like William Barak, for, for instance, you know, he's a charismatic man. He, he, he's eloquent. So who's, so who's William Barak? So, so you know, um, basically the leader of this effort uh, in the 18, uh, you know, through the 1870s and 80s to hold on to this this land. And, you know, he runs what looks like a kind of political machine, a, a little political. He has, you know, a couple of young men who are clearly his staffers who do speak English in a way that he does, who can write letters in English in a way that he can't. They're literate. Um, and... You know he's he's using the opportunities I guess offered by by you know this British settler society to advance their own their, their own cause, but drawing on their own traditions to do it. So it, it's a real cross cultural um, aspect, I think. Yeah, I, I'm mindful of Anna Clark's book, Making Australian History. I think it's what it's called, mm. just off the top of my head, where she talks about this whole process of how um, how history is interpreted at the time and uh, what, what is used, what sources are used and what aren't, what are excluded, what was regarded as informal or subjective and why official records, which tend to then be the government sort of and, 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 and bureaucratic records tend to be over-represented in, in accounts of those periods, of that, that early period, and how that was all part of a process of essentially writing First Nations out of official accounts. That had its contemporaneous effect as well because that tended to inform future generations through school and through newspapers and so forth what mattered and what didn't, and First Nations people just didn't matter. Yeah, and, and, and I think our sense of what politics has been in Australia has been very shaped by you know the settler experience, mm. and I'm still – Shaped by that in all sorts of ways, because I mean, that was about yeah. that was about sort of defeating adversity, and some of that adversity was dealing with the fact that there were people here. Well, that that that's right, and and you know, I think one of the things that that you know the historical writing of the last decade has increasingly shown is that we can't actually understand 
politics in this country, unless we understand that one of the, the, the central features of it was the dispossession of Aboriginal people. That is, that what the settlers wanted was their land. Yeah. And, and they wanted their land for agriculture and pastoralism. They wanted it to build railways on. That, that you know, at the absolute heart of self-government, settler self-government in this country was the desire to control the land. Uh, self-government meant, it meant lo- governments in Australia controlling that resource, that critical resource instead of the British government. And, and that's central to, to how democracy and self-government emerges in this country. And Maria, I mean, some of it's also going to be about presumably that that sort of sense of needing to evangelise their system of government, their system of values, um, the the existence of First Nations who are not who don't come from those traditions and who have different ways of organising their lives and existing and so forth. This is a this is almost like a a moral challenge to to Christian white society that it you know they 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 almost felt like they had to. You know, they had to dominate this. They couldn't allow this other form to exist in tandem and be equally valid. Well, I guess, you know, it kind of goes to what Frank was essentially saying about the fact that the sort of creation of government and its extension uh, and accrual of powers, you know, sort of situated on the allotment of land, who controlled it, who had a right to control it, and then the the politics that that generated around that, which Frank describes, you know, really well around um, the competing interests that emerge between, you know, emancipists and uh, the sort of um, the pure Marinos, as as they were called, um, and then later waves of migrants who would like a sort of stake and a say in the distribution um, of uh, land. And I think the thing that I most enjoyed about some of this discussion, Frank, and which I actually wasn't aware of uh, to the de- to the degree, so I learned a lot, was was actually the way in which broader like imperial uh, policy and events in other parts of the empire really kind of coloured the experience of what happened in Australia. And it's a thread that I think comes up quite a bit in 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 your book. Was that something that you were aware of, or was that something that you sort of learnt through this writing this book? Oh, thanks, Mary. Yeah, look, I think it's something that has become much more a part of the – well, in fact, it was a, a, a traditional way of writing about Australian history to set it within that imperial context. So I, I went back to a lot of very old texts, actually, in in researching this book. A lot of the standard works, in fact, on, on some of the topics, you know, go back decades, and so you kind of have to do that. But, you know, I think there's been a rediscovery of the importance of that British imperial context and of, um, I guess, what we now call a, a transnational context for Australian history. But yes, yeah, certainly if we want to understand the emergence of responsible or self-government in Australia in the 1840s and 1850s, we do need to look at what was happening in Canada in that period. Um, the you know Canadian Rebellion in the 1830s, the Durham report that emerged from it, in some ways set out a kind of blueprint for uh, self-government in in other colonies, um, and and certainly you get adaptations of of those ideas. That idea of the executive being responsible to the lower house of a parliament that we see as the epitome of Westminster democracy, unless you're Scott Morrison grabbing a few ministries on the sly. But <laughs> um, you know that that kind of uh, idea, you know, it wasn't yet fully developed in Britain of the 1830s and 1840s. So it's kind of emerging in settler colonies at, at 
you know, the same time that it's still evolving as a system in in Britain. I mean, we often think of it as kind of a, a fully developed system that we take over from Britain. I think that's quite a common conception of how politics has happened in Australia, that it's been derivative in that way. But as a matter of fact, you know, what we find in in colonies such as uh, the Australian colonies is is a lot of these things developing pretty much in parallel and sometimes ahead of what's going on in Britain. That's obviously the case with the franchise, both men's and women's, which in Australia is a long way ahead of what's happening in Britain in the same period. Yeah, that's a really fascinating uh, sort of development in itself, isn't it? And, that, and and you probably wouldn't have that. So if you not that you could do this, but if you could sort of transplant all of those dynamics into now, but with uh, with the technology that we have, you know, the communications technology we have, and the ability to travel so quickly between the two, you do, you wouldn't have that kind of uh, sort of almost parallel but separate evolution of systems because uh, with the dynamic that we had, where we were trying to essentially create. Little England here in Australia, which is what the colonies were trying to do, they, but you know, it's six months on a boat or whatever it was between between uh, hearing what's going on 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 either side of the world, and uh, so things yeah. develop differently. I mean, there are obviously local dynamics that are different as well. That, that's true. I mean, it, obviously there is a communications revolution in the 19th century. Of course, by the 1870s, they got it down to six hours, um, you know, by telegraph. So communications do improve uh, enormously. And yeah, um, ship voyages that are eight and nine months in the 1780s have been reduced to a matter of, say, you know, three or four months uh, within a few decades. But yeah, look, that that said, the the world does move much more slowly in in the period we're talking about here. Um, and and there's also there is a sense in Australia of wanting to create something new. I mean, so uh, yeah, it's taken for granted that British precedents, uh, that the, the fundamental structures like bicameral parliaments and all the rest of it should be reproduced. But they don't want an established church and the the, the effectively the what's called the Burke settlement of the 1830s. You know, legislation from Governor Burke's period um, essentially, you know, decides that there won't be an established church. Um, there's obviously no aristocracy, so the attempt to create a kind of nobility that would be, uh, you know, placed in, a, in, a, in an upper house in New South Wales was ridiculed as a bunyip aristocracy by Daniel Dennehy, you know, Wentworth's proposal. So there is also an, an adaptation going on. They don't want to be just like Britain. I think that's important. And indeed, democratic culture in Australia in the 1840s and 1850s often differentiates itself from what it sees as the hierarchies of the old world, even as it draws on British working class culture in making its arguments for democracy. Just on the, uh, the the subject of um, the the attitudes, though, you know, we often hear about this term, the cultural cringe. We've heard it over over recent decades. I wonder whether there's a particular thing about settler societies that they are very aware of their kind of nascent institutional structure, their foundations, and that they overreach almost in that process of trying to establish to transplant. A civilization in this in the wilds, as they see it. Oh, there's you know a particular premium on on respectability in the colonies, which is also derived, of course, from the convict origins. This sense of wanting to somehow emancipate society from its ignoble sort of uh, origins as a penal a penal settlement and evangelize religiously. Uh, yeah, and yes. and it's yeah, it's 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 also about well, it's it's about civilizing. The lower, the lower orders the, amongst the whites, but also civilizing indigenous people. Mm. That that sort of impulse, that humanitarian evangelical impulse, is 
you know, taken over from Britain and and and, and certainly flourishes in Australia. But there's also, you know, just a, a constant recognition that that the, the particular um, characteristics of British society, politics, and culture can't simply be transplanted to colonial soil. And I think that's one of the, in some ways, one of the central insights of of. I guess my attempt to to sketch out what this political culture is like. I mean, mm. it it draws naturally on on British precedents, but right from the outset, it can't actually clone them. It can't it can't yes. completely replicate them. And you know, this becomes really evident once the, the whole issue of federation comes up. I mean, you can't create a federation in Australia drawing on precedents from the United Kingdom. It's simply Which is not, not going a federation. To work. It's yeah. not going to work. So what do they yeah. do? Well they they turn to the United States, to a much lesser extent Canada. They even turn to Switzerland, of course, and the 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 use of the referendum. So um, yeah, and and some of the, the great debates around federation are just how how American should the system be, how British should it be, uh, what should be the the you know what kinds of powers should smaller states have in relation to larger ones. So it's also a kind of one vote one value type set of arguments. So a lot of the the, the kinds of um, tensions, if you like, that have emerged in the colonial period are played out when they actually have to to found a, a, a national federation because they remained had always remained unresolved you know it was a british society but it was something other than just a british society and i think that is accentuated when they have to create a federation or they decide they're going to create a federation yeah that's a, a really fascinating point we'll come back to that actually i think maria you have uh, you're quite interested in this whole the role of the chartists for example we'll come back to that in just a moment just take a quick break now there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're on Democracy Sausage, as you know, which comes each week from the Australian National University. Maria, uh, Frank Bongiorno was just talking before the break about um, the, the the culture and the development, I suppose, of our politics and our political institutions and then you know, leading to federation. There are some, I think you were saying to me before, there are some differences in the way uh, Frank has described this in the book, and I'll draw you out on that now. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is always of interest to my um, Australian politics students that are, you know, not enrolled in Frank's excellent Australian political history course, for example, uh, you know, I mean, there's this sort of common misconception that uh, one of the things that made Australian politics so radical was was the presence of the Irish, um, you know, and sort of massively kind of discounting what you kind of already have developed a little bit, Frank, your discussion of the transportation of uh, British or English and Scottish working class cultures 
culture, you know, particularly through the hungry 40s and how that was sort of able to kind of take root here in the, in the 1850s and that sort of process of, I guess, creativity um, that is going on because you simply can't replicate British society in Australia, not only because the environment is wholly different, the politics is wholly different, but the types of people coming here are simply not the same that dominate um, Britain. And I guess the other thing that is related to this, and I know this is a really big woolly question, Frank, but I really liked um, the way you sort of traced um, like moments in Australia's political development and how that links to political culture today. So that the two examples that come to my mind right now is, you know, the fact that Australia was basically Mars, nine months out, nine months back. Uh, and then, you know, the development on the gold fields bringing in like this vast number of people who have a an ethic around um you know being able to be free to toil and extract um their own labor uh, sorry to extract um you know the natural bounty of the land and in essence to be sort of supported by government to do that or at least not to be interfered with yeah gold's really interesting i i this to a wonderful historian in melbourne david goodman who works on both australia and the united states and has written extensively on gold and he made the point that that in in the gold rushes of the 1850s one position that could have been taken was that the public good would be best preserved by government essentially controlling the wealth beneath the soil you know you could almost call that a semi-socialistic point of view, couldn't you? Uh, it's statist and all the rest of it. But he points out that, no, democracy, radicalism coalesced around this concept of the individual digger being given uh, a reasonable amount of access to that wealth in his own right. Usually it was a him, uh, sometimes women, but, it, you know, that basically it was about governments essentially setting up structures, then stepping back and allowing individuals to exercise their independence, to to acquire wealth. And, and, yeah, look, I think you don't need to squint too hard to see the ways in which that remains a really powerful ethic in our, in our politics. Um, you know, is there a straight line between that and negative gearing, do you think, Marie? <laughs> or is there a straight line between that and gas companies? Uh, I know they're not individuals, but but behaving rapaciously, uh, making record profits and uh, and, and really the – not getting much back to um, to the government. I mean, well, there's, I there's mean, obviously yeah. some flowing in, but yeah. yeah. I mean, to, to be a little bit glib, right? Like you know, the, in some ways, yeah, Frank. Like there is like a straight line between that attitude and negative gearing, and equally, you know, with the idea that Australia is essentially going to Mars. So, what would you send the army or a corporation? They sent the army. Um, and that the state would actually have to do stuff, you know, such as it was, because there is no alternative. Well, the straight line and, and begins. Sort of- sorry, I was just going to say the straight line begins with terra nullius as well. Really, you know, with the, with the notion that it's there to be yeah. plundered. It's there exactly. for the taking. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which are the sort of underwriting currents, you know, that that recur throughout um, Australian history and throughout your book. Yeah, look, my, and I have to say, my my general perspective on Australian. I mean, this book would have been very different if I'd actually managed to deliver it to the poor publisher, Black Ink, on time, which was probably <laughs> uh, about on the eve of the of the pandemic. Um, it, it's a 
you know, in fact, I wrote a great deal of it during our, our second lockdown here in Canberra last year. And I'll tell you what, uh, the, the, the pandemic ha- has had an enormous impact in, in reshaping my just general understanding of our politics. Um, that there's this old interpretation that we've really just been talking about of Australian politics as fundamentally Benthamite or utilitarian. That is, that uh, you know, we we don't worry terribly much about abstract rights. That that we see rights as basically proceeding from the law and from government. That we basically regard the state as a, a vast public utility, as W. K. Hancock described it, uh, and it's there to look after us, to do good things for us, uh, and we don't really worry terribly much about theorising it. Now, I'd been sceptical for decades about that reading. I, in fact, I wrote whole books really that that sort of challenged it in this and that way. Um, and I have to say, after several years of our pandemic, I think there's a lot more in it than I realise because I, I think we, we if, if we are a Benthamite or utilitarian society, we reverted to type. I mean, yeah, sure, we've had protests about rights and we've had red, what are they, those red ensigns and we've had mm, the Eureka flag well dusted through. off. And and all- another <laughs> well thought through flag which has been misinterpreted. <laughs> Indeed, all, all that sort of So, look, we've had people talking about abstract rights and standing on their abstract rights in that sort of way, but the reality is most people kind of accepted what governments said, accepted what governments did, agreed that governments had a kind of right to draw the line between individual freedom and collective good. And yes, of course, at the edges, there was non-compliance and people being a bit naughty here and there. But what is striking, surely, is the mass obedience that we saw um, through enormous stresses. I mean, six Melbourne lockdowns, one of them going for months. I I doubt whether this could have been done in most other countries. Yeah, but I've always challenged this idea that uh, that it's just obedience. I think there was a a lot of common sense. Oh, it's not just obedience. It's a a mutual understanding. Mm. I mean, I think it spoke to a a maturity in Australian society that is not existent in some other societies where perhaps they've had a much more explicit rights tradition Mm. um, and they've been much more inclined to political rhetoric, for example, much more associated with uh, oratory, much more associated with, um, you know, kind of abstract ideas of their nation. Ours has, as you say, been much more utilitarian. Mm. But I think at that moment what we actually saw was a lot of people accepting it wasn't so much that they thought the government had a right to do this, they thought the government had a responsibility to play its coordinating role in ensuring we got through this very difficult time. And that's where yeah. the sort of wartime analogies, I think, did work to some extent. Yeah, and no, I agree entirely, Mark. I mean, the use of the term obedience is probably simplistic. I, I borrow it from John Hurst who made the point, you know, we like to think of ourselves as anti-authoritarians, but we really are a terribly obedient people when you get down to it. But I think the way you've put it, it actually does dig down to what's going on there. And it, it, it is about rational judgment. It's not about blind obedience. It's about rational judgment. Um, and, and it's about a certain set of expectations about what governments should and can do. And they do go back to, I reckon, convict era. You know, the, one of the, the key, the, the key institution of convict, early convict society, early penal society in Australia was the commissariat. That is the, the, the store. And, mm. and, you know, a lot of the, the, debates and corruption and arguments were about the government store because the government store was effectively, you know, it's kind of, if you like, the prototype for our 
Department of so what what's it called these days? Social Security or whatever we call it these days. Social services, human services, human services. whatever it is. Because it was the Robo kind debt. of it was <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was basically what what was it was there to, to make sure people didn't starve. And yeah. it was the governor the governor's specific responsibility to ensure that people didn't starve. Mm. And and look, again, um perhaps not a straight line, but there there is a, a, a I think a fairly uh, unbroken line between there and what we've seen in the pandemic about what we thought governments should do. In a sense, our job keeper was our modern commissariat um, in, in a lot of ways, uh, job keeper and job seeker, I suppose, and all of those other measures that that, that, that very quickly fell into place in, in 2020. Yeah, I'm just glad a lot of those private schools did so well out of job keeper too. They, they, they <laughs> did. But of course, that, that also brings us back because it, it it is a system that is ripe for the private explo- exploitation for profit, and of course yeah. this is what uh, the early military officers did with the commissariat. Yeah. They exploited it mercilessly for profit. They monopolised goods that came in on on the ships and sold them at inflated prices. So, in a sense, uh, we we know that this is a kind of ethic, a, a system. That is 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 ripe for being exploited by the ruthless, and and yeah, sure, we've seen it again. Yeah, and the well placed proximate to power. We can we'd yep. say the same about the distribution, you know, of of land, and you know this, you know, and the sort of ineffectual um, attempts by governors to kind of manage that and, and and giving up. Frank, but what I actually do want to ask you about because I think it's another era of history which is very important, but I think not well understood in Australia, and and that's the eighteen nineties depression. And the way that impacts uh, that that kind of discussion around federation and the extension of the state into you know more domains, like particularly sort of at the state level, you know, um, what did you have to say about that? Tell the listeners. Ah, yes. Well, thanks, Maria. I mean, the eighteen nineties depression. When people talk about the depression, even today, it's always the thirties that come to mind. The nineteen thirties, but. Look, the 1890s was a very deep economic depression. It was absolutely formative for that generation of politicians who really, in a lot of ways, created the, the modern Australian welfare state. People like John Curtin and uh, Ben Chifley and indeed Robert Menzies are all children in that era. Some of them witness uh, considerable suffering, certainly Chifley did. Um, so it's it's formative, I think, for, for a whole generation of politicians across the political spectrum. It influences a lot of sometimes wacky labour ideas about banks because um, that, that depression was often, I mean, it was associated with bank crashes in a way that the 1930s depression wasn't. So a lot of banks went down, people lost savings. So a lot of labour ideas about controlling the money power, taming the money power, um, which was behind establishing the Commonwealth Bank and a lot of the banking policies of the 1940s uh, around central banking, all of that did owe a great deal to that legacy of of the Great Depression. But yes, I mean, it is also a part of the more immediate background to federation. um, And and the creation of the Labor Party too, the sort of political aspect political wing of that industrial movement. It, it, it is. I mean, the, the party merges out of, um, well, particularly out of the maritime strike of 1890, which is sort of on the cusp of the Depression. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, the Labor Party's formed against the background of, of the Depression uh, and in, in some ways it, it holds back the Labor Party um, initially because it, it destroys the union. Well, it doesn't destroy it, but it, it certainly shreds u- yeah. the union movement. But, it, it, you know, in terms of historical consciousness or collective consciousness, yeah. The, de- the depression of the 1890s is just so formative for, for 
the Labor Party, but not only the Labor Party, it's also critical for the country party when it comes along because, you know, we think of the country party today as just another conservative party, but that's not how it was in the beginning. It's very preoccupied with taming markets, with ensuring that um, the exploiting middle, or exploitative middleman is 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 controlled and all the rest of it. So they, they actually end up in coalition with Labor in some cases, don't they? Uh, right up into the 20s, I think. They, they do in some instances and, uh, you know, particularly in Victoria, I mean, really, the early uh, country party, it was it was modelled on the Labor Party. It was formed by people with backgrounds in the Labor Party. It was, in, in a lot of ways, it was the party of the small farmer. Yes, and you had that particularly strongly in rural Queens, regional Queensland, didn't you? I mean, there, there, it was often said that, the, you know, the, the sort of cultural differences between uh, some aspects of the Labor Party and the old country party in Queensland when, you know, there wasn't that much space between them in ideological terms. That, that's true. I mean, L- Labor's often done well in the bush. I mean, the central west of New South Wales was a great Labor heartland for, for many years. Uh, essentially, small farmers, many with Catholic backgrounds, because religion also played a role in political, shaping political allegiance. Um, yeah. And that just, yeah. just, just on that point, because that r- reminds me of the part of the question I don't think we got to that Maria asked before about the the influence of the Irish as distinct from the Chartists. Now, most people, or some people, might not know what the char- who the Chartists were, but essentially, they 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 rise out of out of Britain, out of uh, industrial cities in yeah. the north of Britain, for example. And it's, it's essentially a, the chart is a list of of demands for better conditions for the working class. Correct? Yes. Yeah. No, that's true. And it is yeah fundamentally a British working class movement. It does have some Irish involvement. Um, the, the, the and Henry Parks, for example, comes yeah. to Australia having been a Chartist, and there are several others as well. That's right, and 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 you know a lot of the, I mean, Parks is is a Republican really in his very early period before he sort of abandons that for for you know empire loyalism. Um, but yeah, look, the, the Irish influence is hard to pinpoint in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, I talk in the book a lot about the role of religious sectarianism, which of course is a strain. I mean, you'll remember it, Mark. You know, going right through to to when we were kids, I think. You, know, mm. you could still detect it in in certainly in politics in Victoria in the nineteen eighties. Uh, South Australia, of course, had its own distinctive patterns, which with, with smaller numbers of Catholics. And yeah, than, the DLP yeah. never got a foothold there yeah. in, in the Parliament. But yes, it was it was less obvious in South Australia than it was, say, in New South Wales and Victoria. Yeah, yeah but I mean, you know, the whole religious strand, the the, the rivalries between Catholics and Protestants, yep. the particular positions taken up by. The hierarchy uh, in in various controversies that these are a part of the story of Australian politics. You know, it was always said that um, when I was a kid that if you were a Catholic, you couldn't join the police force in South Australia, and if you weren't a Catholic, you couldn't join the police force in New South Wales. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there were also at, at certain government departments like customs that were said to be sort of havens for for, for Catholics. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, South Australia case is really interesting in the split of the mid fifties. I mean, the particular position taken up by the Catholic Archbishop there, Matthew Beavich, is is very important actually in what you know sort of happens. He he, he adopts an anti Santa Maria, anti grouper sort of line and, and and that becomes very important. Yeah. Look, I mean this is a really uh, an excellent book and there's a there's many, many pages to it. It's quite a thick tome. So uh, you, you have every excuse for not me you know not making the deadline even if you missed it by a couple of years yes. or whatever it was. <laughs> poor poor oh, black dear. But that, no, but, no, but that just made it better, right, because that just has brought it right up to now and it's really um, it's mm-hmm. really useful yeah. for that. Um, we, we haven't really got 
any time left, I suppose, to do this. But just to sort of make the point that it, you, you do start with that uh, that pre-contact period, and it is, and you use sort of political events chronologically through through to sort of give you the structure. Um, which parts of the book did you enjoy writing most? I know I particularly enjoyed reading, you know, reminding myself about, um, you know, the battles between. Uh, Howard and Peacock, um, <laughs> you know, obviously the, the sort of uh, we're at the 50th, this very year we're at the 50th anniversary of the election of the Whitlam government, which mm-hmm. was a very hinge point election. Uh, and 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 we know the sort of, you know, the ramifications of that, the, the, the earth tremors that occurred really through Australian politics for a long time after that, the impact that had on Labor when Hawke comes to power in 83, determined to run a much more organised and disciplined Show, but also the ideological differences. Which parts of of the uh, of the book did you most enjoy writing? Yeah, look, in some ways, I found the latter parts harder um, because yeah, it's harder to sift. I think when you're dealing with a more recent past, what really matters, what's less significant. Yes. Uh, there's less. There's a lot more words out there, but there's less kind of synthesis. And mm. and I mean, a good example of this is, I mean, one of the things the book does for the 20th century, building on what we've been talking about for the 19th, is it, there's a lot on state government, you know. Um, yes, yes. And that's unusual, I think, for, for political history, which I think tends to neglect state government. Yes, I um, enjoyed the section on Jeff Kennett, for example, which is really, you know, you know really reminded me of just how dramatic that was. Yeah, and no, thanks, Mark. And, and I really enjoyed writing about South Australia, about the, the Playford years, for instance, which, you know, seemed to me just so important in understanding mm. post-war exactly. Australia and, and, and again, the, the long period of Labor rule in New South Wales, which we kind of forget when we talk about the Menzies era. So I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed thinking about the, the growing importance of state government in recent years, which I don't think I do full justice to in the books. I think it's actually even more important than I make out there. But, you know, just the ways in which state governments have become important arenas for for experimentation. I think we've talked about this on Democracy Sausage before and, um, uh, you know, their borrowing rights have have increased, which has made them, I think, um, more significant in all sorts of ways. But look, in some ways, the the, the parts of the book I enjoy most are those I know least about because it's such a a kind of learning, a a self-education. Yeah. So I I really enjoyed the very early period, um, you know, dealing with pre-contact society through to about the 1850s, which, you know, is a big sweep. But what what I enjoyed about that is is looking at all the different sites and domains of politics. I mean, there are no assemblies in early colonial Australia Mm. amongst the white population. So where does politics happen? Well, it happens in the courtroom. It happens at the governor's table, who's invited and who's not. Uh, it, it happens at um, uh, pub, public feasts, pub, pub, public banquets, who says what on those occasions. And certainly it also happens in the in the inns and, and, and the streets and, and the halls. And I, I just enjoyed that process of you know, thinking about the different domains in which politics actually was carried on in those in those early years, which is something I was aware of and had taught to students here, but it never really tried to to systematically come to grips with. And also just the different, you know, the use of pipes, rude rhymes and rude rude verse that would be circulated uh, in in the very early period about the governor um, was a way in which political dissent was carried mm. on, for instance, mm. you know, that 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 sort of thing right, right through. No, I enjoy doing politics on the ground, you know, right through to the Saints in, in Brisbane, you know, punk rock band in the 1970s, which I also see as a part of political culture, yeah. graffiti. Um, yeah. All of these things matter, I think. And, and we 
we, we provide, I think, a, um, a very incomplete understanding of our politics if all we deal with is, is the Whitlams and the Hawks. And yeah, the and that goes yeah. back to that point also Precisely. about official records. I, I, I particularly, when you were talking just then, I, I remembered a, a section uh, when you're talking about Pauline Hanson and her arrival and the sort of earthquake that that is really in, in national politics. And you cite a number of people contemporaneously remarking about Hansenism, including a schoolgirl from a Brisbane uh, college, um, private school, I think, um, in, in, in one of her papers. And she describes Hansen as extremely scared, scared of change. And, and, you know, and I thought captured her perfectly, actually. But yeah, I was, I was really thought that was an interesting sort of curatorial choice for you to use. And when I say interesting, I mean good. Like, I, say I, I have to <laughs> confess to benefiting there. Uh, uh, Emily Gallagher, who's a brilliant PhD student of mine, was a paid researcher on, on part of the – I mean, obviously, I, I didn't have a huge grant to do this, but she did some of the research and works in children's history. And so she had right. some, some really great ideas about where we could look for, yeah, well, for school kids. It and, really and, enriches yeah, it, I it think. Does. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderfully textured um, history and, you know, I, I would commend it to readers because we don't really have a, a book of this um, sort of that's doing this kind of job. You know, most of the, the books in that genre are are, are top down and, and look, looking through institutions and elite perspectives. Yes. And, and this offers, I think, a much kind of richer kind of look at what it means to do politics in this country. And I'm really excited for all the sort of generative ideas uh, that people who go to read this book will think, well, I should do research on that. Yes, I think that's a very good point. Now, Frank, just finally, I'll, I'll make this observation. I noticed you mentioned Thomas Playford. So Thomas Playford, former Premier of South Australia for a long period of time, mm -hmm. conservative. I thought, I, you know, it, it reminded me that uh, when I grew up in South Australia, there was a near, we were near Belair National Park and my friend Andrew Binns, who I was talking to on the weekend and who listens to this podcast from Darwin most weeks where he, he lives. Um, g'day, Andrew. Um, uh, he, uh, he and I, uh, we used to swim in this, in this lake near the, um, in the Belair National Park as kids did illegally. And, um, it was officially called uh, to Sir Thomas Playford Lake. I didn't even know that at the time. We, it was just known universally as Tom's Puddle. <laughs> <laughs> So there you are. There, yes. there, there's, there's sort of Australian political culture uh, sort of encapsulated in a, you know, in a, in a single title, in a single moment. In place. In place. In place. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, as I say, congratulations on this book. Uh, Maria's point a minute ago was perfect. Uh, you know, you, we, there is nothing really with this kind of thematic consistency through it and which which is so closely related to the ground and uh, it's a great addition to, to our knowledge and it's great to talk to you on Democracy Sausage about it. Always welcome here, of course, Frank. Thanks so much, Mark, and thanks, Maria. Thanks for, for reading the book. I really appreciate it. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll be back next week, which I think we might be looking at the US because let's face it, between now and then there's um, there's a potential meteor strike with Trump's name written on it. Um, who knows? We, um, we'll, we'll wait and see what happens in the midterms and there's some talk that uh, the orange one might, uh, depending on how well his own candidates, the ones he's endorsed, go. You know, these are the election deniers and kooks and, and so forth. Um, uh, depending on how well they go, um, he may come out and declare that he's the uh, he's the P for the pod in 2024. I noticed that he's... Um, He's trying to get ahead of the man he calls Ron de Sanctimonious. <laughs>
I know it's never ending, but oh. it's it's a it's a it's a deep worry, I think, for yeah. for the world really. If this is the way things are going, uh, bearing in mind his performance and his reaction to the last election, so that's probably going to be our topic next week. And we look forward to uh, talking to you then. So from Australian National University, where democracy such comes from. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.